wrap up the series at Messy Church, and I can't think of a better way to wrap it up than to spend time in First Corinthians chapter 13. And we talked a little bit about it last week, so I prayed you that we wanted to adjust your view, or maybe my view, maybe I was the only one in the room who felt this way, or at least has this perspective about the atonement, or really the question that's germane to that issue theologically is, why did Jesus have to die? What keeps me separated from God? What's sin all about? So if you are interested in that, you can hop online and listen. But it laid the foundation for where we're at today with 1 Corinthians chapter 13, because love, love's really the foundation of all things. And so our prayer team and uh, some other folks in the church as well, it's beyond our prayer team, have been praying this verse and the verses surrounding it in Ephesians. In fact, they've been praying many of the prayers that Paul prays in Ephesians, and they're powerful they're large, they're expansive, huge, massive prayers that Paul prays. But this is really foundational, not only for today, but for my life and your life, for every relationship that we have with anybody else, especially your family or people that you walk with closely. This is what Paul prays. I pray to you, being rooted and established in what? In love. It's the foundation of everything. It really is. Embracing God's love is, is primary. And, and most of us have an understanding of love that is really, it's very really shaped. It's informed. I would even say it's, it's troubled by our understanding of really human, imperfect love. Most of the things we think about love, we've been taught by the people that have relationships with us and the way we interact with one another. And we walk away or grow up or maybe just have built in, it's kind of in our operating system, it just kind of operates in the back of the you know it's there, this understanding of love. Because when I say love, you hear something different than what I mean. And when we read in Scripture about love, it's different than what I believe God originally intended, what we hear. Like when I was just turned 17, Donna almost 15. See how I did that? Um, we laid eyes on each other for the very first time. And I didn't know her at all. All I did was see her. And that was enough for me because my 17-year-old brain didn't know the difference between infatuation and love. I mean, you know, you know, you remember, you've been there. Your your frontal lobe isn't even formed yet, right? I mean, this is, uh, this is how it is for us as we're growing up, and I saw her, and I wanted to get to know her, and, and so what began as this seed of infatuation eventually grew into this thing that I called love long before I really understood what love was. I don't remember how old I was when I said to God, I love you for the first time, but I do know this, that what I understood about love was very incomplete, and my understanding over 30 years of marriage, 35 years since we met has changed significantly. I mean, early in our relationship, I loved how she made me feel about me. That's what I loved. And I loved how she looked. And both of those things are still true, but a love that is worth pouring into, a love that endures, that's a very different kind of love. And I thought I understood it. I thought I understood it even in five years of marriage until we had our first son, Austin, was born. 
from miscarriage. In fact, early in our marriage, we thought we didn't even want kids, and, and God ended up pregnant, and we had a miscarriage, and then we thought, oh my goodness, I don't know what's happened to our hearts, but God has sort of changed us into wanting kids. And so along came Austin, and meet this little pile of gooey flesh, you know, messy, yucky, and I think, I, I thought I knew what love was, but now I'm sure I know. And we've been in the hospital for, you know, a couple nights, and, and you know, all we had to do was press the call button, and nurse came running, and, you know, if I'm going to change the diaper, I just want somebody else to do it, and, you know, Tom's recovering, and we walked into the house and set this carrier down in our foyer for 10 minutes, and the weight of love overwhelmed me. Well, now, where's my call button? What do I do when something goes wrong? And this is now all me and Tom and I together. And now we know what love is. But Austin, of course, is experiencing love for the very first time as a tiny little infant. Science tells us, all the studies tell us that when a baby is born, even in utero, they're learning what love is. And a baby's to grasp understanding of how important love is to be rooted and established in love. They require infants to be held for eye contact, to be touched. They require soothing, warm, and connected voices that even after they've taken their first breath outside of the room, they are piecing together the puzzle of what love and the babies that don't receive that find themselves struggling in so many ways, even physiologically. It's unbelievable the power of love. And as Austin would grow, he would learn about love. Primarily, he would learn about love from me and from mom. And Austin would be experiencing from his parents a love Jesus, redeemed and forgiven. Soon he would learn. If I'm obedient, I think I'm loved more. If I'm compliant, I think it's pleasing to mom and dad. If I do what they're telling me to do, or at least tell them that I did what they're telling me to do, then I think things will go well for me. And so his understanding of love, even in a very, what I think would be, a loving, blessed home, is imperfect. And he begins to learn very early on, love is conditional. It's demanding. It's imperfect. Fall short. So what did you learn about love? Responsibility to love and take care of you, not just your parents. You know, the, the list is long, isn't it? The people that were over you and taught you and guided you. And some of you experienced um, unbelievably horrific pictures of love and relationships. All of us come to the conclusion eventually that love is conditional and 
to what degree and how much? Well, it depends on your experience. And so this is such a problem that when somebody eventually tells us that God loves you, when somebody tells us this, we, of course, hear it and see it and experience it through our lens, through our understanding of what love is. And this statement comes with an unbelievable amount of baggage for every one of us. And some of that baggage is heavy and weighs us down. And even, even those of us who grew up in what we would call just incredible homes and were thankful to our parents, or we grew up in amazing churches and we were taught many wonderful things about God's love, even those circumstances, even those settings fall short because what's a messy world, messy people, full of messy churches. And so this comes with conditions, exceptions, exclusions, and provisos. God loves you. So much so that many of us, we showed you these, these uh, ideas last week. When we hear this, we often think this, well, God would love me if, and fill in the blank with any number of things. God would love me if, if I was better, if I wasn't so sinful, if I didn't have this one habit, if, if I didn't have just a, just a stubborn heart, if I wasn't such a foul mouth, if I, you fill in the blank. And we also maybe want the other side of this statement. If God loved me, then why couldn't love me? If God loved me, I wouldn't have this diagnosis. If God loved me, I wouldn't be in such a financial mess. If God loved me, I wouldn't struggle in this way. And with these two statements, pressing in on our understanding of love and who God is, here's what we do. We make God in our own image. Here's what that means. We attach to God and His love for us. All of the best of love that we've experienced and all of the worst of love that we've experienced. And we hear this statement, God loves you. And while we would like to believe that our definition is pure and simple and just exactly what love should be, we can't help but bring with it all of that with us. And when we do, we make him into our image. When we make God into our image, then his love falls short. And his love is less than transformative. When we make God into our image, we find ourselves on a performance treadmill or living with a sense of guilt and detachment or distance. It's a problem. Because when God made you, when God knit you in your mother's womb, the way David describes Psalm 139, when God describes it in Genesis 1 and 2, he says, this is very good. He made you to walk in relationship with him. But it's so hard to be in relationship with somebody whose demands you can't meet, whose life you can't emulate fully and completely. And so we walk distant, hoping to, I don't know, whatever your perception of love is, not aggravate him, not disturb him, not wake him up from his nap. And he will just allow us to go on. And so our, our understanding of love needs to be transformed. It needs to be redeemed. It needs to be worked over a bit. And this is a something that we do once and done. It's something that we do for the entirety of our lives. In fact, I would say this. This for me and maybe for you, maybe for many others, so many thoughtful authors.
scriptures did I read? This is the journey of the Christian life. Remaking our understanding of love from top to bottom and doing it again and again and again. And doing it in such a way that our understanding of God begins to shift and morph. How we relate to others begins to be transformed and redeemed. This is the work of redemption, of sanctification, of becoming more like Jesus. It needs to be transformed. And so, John tells us very clearly that God is love. And what does this mean? And what does it look like? And what kind of texture does it have? How does it behave? And how does it look? How does it act? How does it treat? How does it encourage? How does he meet us on Tuesday and Wednesday and days that matter? So 1 Corinthians 13, we'll take a peek at a few very key important concepts before we're done today. It sits in this part of this first letter to the church at Corinth. It's a messy church. And in this little moment in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul was talking about the body of Christ. Maybe you remember that a couple weeks ago. He's going to talk about spiritual gifts and how the church works together. And he talks about love because love is the single characteristic that's supposed to identify how you and I relate to one another while we serve God and live in community with each other. But this wasn't happening in the church in Corinth. They were jealous. They were treating each other poorly. They would come together for communion and be rude. And all kinds of things were showing up in their relationships that weren't very holy at all. As they use spiritual gifts, they use them in proud ways. And they used it to belittle others. It was an awful scene. For, for that reason, so many people shrink back from using the gifts that God has given them without understanding that Paul writes in Corinthians 13 so that you would operate in love and do all of the things that God has called you to do and to be. And God has made you with incredible gifts and talents, whether it's drums or guitar or singing or working in the background or laying the foundation for a prayer ministry of our church that will absolutely bring about the most incredible fruit, or whether it's developing businesses in ways that transform communities and create resources for the kingdom of God. What has God done in you? What gifts has he given you? How can you use them for his kingdom? All important questions, but without love being at the center, you can't even begin to move forward. And so, God is to impact the world around you, you need to understand this. Before we talk about how this works in the church, we have to understand this idea and this principle. You cannot give a love that you haven't received. Say that statement with me, okay? So you remember it. You cannot give a love that you haven't received. You can't do it. It's impossible to do. If you're struggling with forgiveness, Forgiving somebody, letting go of a hurt. Odds are it's because you haven't embraced your own forgiveness. If you struggle with loving people, in other words, when people get under your skin and such irritating, and, you know, when you debrief your day, if you're confessing the sins of other people, then odds are you haven't received the love that God has given you. If you come up to me after church or in the lobby and you say, hey, Phil, well, here's the deal. I got to go to lunch, and I totally forgot my wallet. And a few of you have pulled this on me already, so you know who you are. It's all right. 
the soil. So, and I, here's what I would do. I would say, you know what, I, I got you covered. I pull my wallet out. And, where are you going? Oh, okay, give me a second. Oh, sorry. Where are you going? Oh, there's time. I can do that. I can do that. Freaking corner me and say, you know, six months behind on my mortgage, and they're going to foreclose, then we have a problem. One that I can't help you with. Unless I'm suffering a lot. Expresses his love to you. This is the primary aim, the initial aim of the Christian life, is to be the recipient of that love. Everything you will do subsequent to that flows from that idea. And it either comes in waves or it is a stream that is drying up and worthless, which is a This is what God is describing through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. And so, this will give you a picture of his love. I paraphrase 1 Corinthians 13 in a few different ways just to help you grasp this idea. And so, this is a paraphrase of verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 4. This is the very beginning. Say it with me. God, God's love for you is, we're all patient. You're patient, aren't you? Well, you, know, you know what it's like to feel patient, right? You walk into a place, and you know that you have to wait, and you're at peace, and you're calm, and you're patient, right up until the moment when you're not patient anymore. Have you ever watched somebody lose their patience? What does this do to you? When you watch somebody lose their patience, what effect does it have on you? You're in a place, a DMV, or someplace at a restaurant where you're waiting, and you see people who are agitated and angry and they get told how long it's going to be to wait and they make three trips to the hostess table, right, and say, where are we on the list? What's it like for you to watch somebody lose their patience? Here's what it does to me. It makes me think, is that what I look like? When I lose my patience, that's awful. I mean, it's like, a, you know, we're out to dinner and we get a free show, right, right there in the lobby of the restaurant. God is patient. God's love for you is infinitely patient. But most of us believe that God's love for us is patient right up until He's not patient any longer. And we've all experienced that with somebody in our life. Our father, or our grandfather, or our boss, or our supervisor, or our neighbor, barking dog, whoever it is. And we understand what it means to experience somebody in loving kindness and patience right up until the moment that they lose it. Most of the people that I know believe that that's how God feels about them when they fail. That he was fine right up until that moment. And God has lost it. And he says, thank God. We already prayed about this last week and asked for forgiveness. How long do you think that's going to not wear thin? Do you understand that God 
if you're well versed in scripture, this will work for you in a lot of ways. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance and so on. But you're going to think of moments, even while that's on the screen, even when you go back later and read 1 Corinthians 13 on your own, you're going to think of moments where God lost his patience in scripture, and you're going to assume that that's how he feels about you. So when you find ideas in scripture that seem to be opposing, and there are hundreds of thoughts in scripture, and there is tension between them, and both are true, then your job is to go back to the nature and the character of God and understand this. God's love for you is patient. Not because of who you are. Not because you finally learned your lesson. Not because you're never going to do that thing again. His love for you being patient has nothing to do with your behavior. With your ability to perform. And how you even act. God's nature is loving. Everything he does moment when you think you lack his patience or correct you or guide you down a path of discipline, his love is full of discipline but it's different than the discipline that you and I experienced. And as a man, I thought my love for Austin was terribly pure. And I found myself at times correcting him from a heart of love. And that correction or discipline was I believe is how God would correct and discipline me. But many times, if you're a parent, you get this. If a parent, you get this. We're going to say, you don't have to have a kid, right? Then you understand this. Sometimes the correction I gave to Austin looked like discipline, felt like love and discipline, but it was because I just didn't want to deal with him anymore. Parents, have you ever done that? Put your hand up, parents, if you've done that before. That's not God's love. That's us being human. God's love is different. God's love for you and his patient. It says this also, 1 Corinthians 13. God's love for you is what? I love the word kind. Because kind is so, well, it sounds like it's less than love, but it's not. Kindness, one of my good friends says, is the tutor of love. In other words, kindness is in the details of your everyday life. Love is this grand, large, big idea, right? Capital L. Love is massive and big. Kindness is in how I treat you when I think you can't do anything good for me in return. That's what kindness is. Kindness is me being thoughtful and slow enough to look you in the eye, to have a conversation with you, to open the door for you, to give you the money for lunch in the lobby. This is kindness. God's love is eminently kind. Goes on to say this. This was tough for some of you. God's love for you keeps no record of wrongs. Just for you. You can read it again. Here's what David says in the Psalms. He did not treat us as our sins deserved. Or so treat us as our sins deserve. He separates our sins from us as far as the saying east is how far is that? 
the scripture well? If you know, there's many scriptures that say, well, I think it's talking to the day of judgment. That's true. Well, I'll have to give an account for who I am and what I've done. That's absolutely true. You want to fly and be called on the carpet for something that nobody knows about that you have to give an account for that somebody's just hearing and learning for the very first time. You fail somebody. You messed up. You did the thing you shouldn't have done. You know what that's like? Everybody just felt that. God and I have things like that between us. There are other things that Donna and I have between us that are well-known, forgiven, taken care of, sewn up, and put to bed. When those offenses come up between us, it reminds me of this verse that love keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, I might clean it up, but I'm not holding it over to anyone. This is what it's going to be like when God calls us to account. When God calls us to account, is he a judge? Absolutely. Is he a consuming fire? Of course he is. This is his identity. But it is a judge who operates from a primary position of love. You've never experienced that, probably. Many of us have never had a human relationship like that. But this is God's very nature. God keeps no record of wrongs. The blood of Jesus covers your sin past, present, and future. Your reconciliation with God is full and complete. What is the thing that comes to mind for you that makes you feel like you don't belong, like you're not good enough, like you don't measure up? What is it? What thing in your past does the enemy lay a hold of and shove it in front of you? makes you perceive yourself to be less than loved. God's love is the antithesis of that. He keeps no record of wrongs. Amen. We've not hit all of it. We've just cherry-picked a few. Say it with me. God's love for you never fails. How often does it fail? How often does it fail? Come on. How often does God's love fail? It never fails. It never fails. How often is it inconsistent? Never. How often is it based on what you do in your performance? Never. Never based on any of that. Well, that wouldn't be love, would it? That would be something conditional. That would be something short of even infatuation. That wouldn't even work for a definition of love. God's love never fails. Now, what if? What if you could take each of the concepts? We said four. There's about eight. Each of the concepts of 1 Corinthians 13, and you could write them as an understanding of God's love for you, the same way I have for you this Sunday. And what if you took each of those concepts and you decided, I'm just going to ponder one throughout a week, a given week, and you pick one, or maybe you do them in order, and this is the very nature of God's love for me. And I'm going to ruminate on it, I'm going to meditate on it, I'm going to ponder it, I'm going to look for other scriptures that either support it or maybe create some conflict there and some friction. What if you began to sort of engage in the wholesale renovation of your understanding of love? What if you did that? And as you did it, you asked yourself a couple of questions. And so maybe this week, maybe this week, you've got 
focused in on one of these statements like this one. God's love never fails. When did I feel like he failed me? When do I feel like I failed him and then he reciprocates for me? And what if you centered on these two questions as you pondered and meditated on the nature and the character of God's love? Here's the first one. How does my experience of love, my experience growing up, my experience in my family, my experience with my extended family and friends and neighbors and coaches and teachers, how does my experience of love shape my understanding of love? In other words, you have your definition of love, and it's been shaped and formed over the years. How does my experience of love shape my understanding of love? And this is, as I ask this question and deal with it, I have to be able to hold two ideas that seem to be sort of oppositional at the same time. In fact, this is the this is a sign of intelligence that you were made in God's image, that you can hold two ideas that seem to be contradictory, but they're both true at the same time. I grew up in an incredible church, man. I had a youth pastor that loved me and spent time with me and kind of mentored me. He's the reason I'm in ministry. He's the reason why I was even sensitive to the call to ministry. I had a pastor that married Donna and I, baptized me and my family, uh, married Donna's parents when he was just a young pastor. We married us and he's old. And just recently passed away within the last five years. And because of him, my understanding of God is so deep and rich. And, and I, I can't even tell you how grateful I am that I grew up in a setting like that where I was taught the nuances of, of God's nature and God's character. I'm so thankful for that. Through that same church, that same fellowship, I also learned what it meant to experience shame, unhealthy shame. Shame that I should never experience. I learned that the focus of my relationship with God without Jesus was sin and getting rid of sin. Even though it says in Hebrews, fix your eyes on who? Jesus. I grew up believing, fix your eyes on your sin. I learned both at the same church. How does my experience of love shape my understanding of love? So what is that for you? What did you learn about love? For good or for bad? Does it mean you don't like your parents? Does it mean you have your eyes wide open? Does it mean you're not thankful for your church body? It means that you have grown since then. It's a tough question to ask, but it's an important one. And one that you can wrestle with with people who journey with you in your faith. And then, as you wrestle with this question, there's a second one that's really important. It's this. In what ways is my understanding of God's love incomplete? In what ways is it incomplete? Now, this is so important. Don't miss this. If you can't answer this question, all that means is that you lack self-awareness. That's all it means. It means that you lack some self-awareness about how God's love is this and my understanding of it is this. It's a little different. So in what ways is it incomplete? And this is why this is so important. When you can name it, then you begin to experience a depth of God's love that was otherwise sort of sealed off from you taken away from you. 
we believe that you follow after us. That you come after us. That you pursue us. We believe that your love is full and complete. Spirit speak to you right now in this moment. You can pray this very simple prayer. Lord, I want to understand your love more fully and more completely. Help me to be overwhelmed by it. In our human imperfect understanding of love, believe that it's incomplete. So transform us. In the 1800s, there was a little boy born in England. His name was Francis Thompson. His dad wanted to be a doctor, a physician, and so when he was 18, he went to med school but he learned from him there. He believed that God had given him the gift to be a, a writer and a poet. So he began writing lyrics and poetry. Growing up, his health was frail. Probably why his dad wanted him to be a physician. He always struggled physically. He struggled emotionally with depression. By the time he got into his early teens, he developed a, an addiction to opium. Struggled with that throughout his life. The most famous of his works is called The Hound of Heaven. And the Hound of Heaven describes a God that pursues you the way the way a hunting dog pursues a rabbit. Nose to the ground, after you, pursuing you, loving you. We have a beagle in our house. He grabs a scent. Nothing deters him. Francis Thompson finally died of TB at the age of 47. But his poem lives on. The Hound of Heaven, pursuing you, desiring a relationship with you, all centered around the idea that you are loved as you are, fully and completely. Will you become like Jesus? Absolutely. Will you? Have you dropped some of the hang-ups or the hurts or the issues that you deal with? Maybe even during this life you will. But will God's love for you be more? No. Could his love be more complete? Absolutely not. But we believe you are the God who saves. And you are the God who pursues us. Nose to the ground. Our sins, 